Before we start today's episode, we wanted to let you know about an exciting giveaway happening now through September 19th. You can win two free VIP tickets for the For the Church National Conference September 24th through 25th in Kansas City, Missouri at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Hear about the mission of the church from powerful speakers like Jason K. Allen, Russell Moore, Owen Strawn, Jared C. Wilson, and others. Regular admission is $110 per ticket, but you can go for free. How? To enter the competition, go to missionspodcast.com slash giveaway for instructions or follow the link in the show notes. But don't wait. See you in Kansas City and enjoy today's episode of the show. Welcome to the Missions Podcast. My name is Alex Kochman, joining you here from ABWE International, along with Scott Dunford. Uh, And we are here today with a very special guest. But first, I have to give a shout out to my friend, Nate Bowen. He's an old friend from college. And I'm scrolling Twitter one day, and I see an image that he had posted um, from a missions trip that he was on uh, heading to Zambia. And I I look and I see uh, that he is posed in this picture uh, right beside Pastor Conrad Mbewe, um, who many of our listeners might know from his work with organizations like Desiring God and the Gospel Coalition. Uh, but uh, I, just scrolling through my feed and seeing a, a picture, I'm assuming that it was Conrad Mbewe that posted a picture of himself with this group because I follow him on Twitter. Um, and then I looked and it was actually posted by my buddy. I'm like, oh, that's that's funny. And so I sent him a message and I said, you know, I wonder if uh, Pastor Mbewe wouldn't be able uh, or willing to join us on the podcast. And lo and behold, uh, he was. And so Pastor Mbewe, thank Thank you so much for joining us today from Zambia, six hours ahead of our time. Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I do look forward to spending this time with you. Well, we are so thrilled to have you here today. And by way of introduction, for those not familiar with Pastor Mbewe's ministry, Conrad Mbewe has pastored um, and pastors Kabwada Baptist Church uh, in Lusaka, Zambia, for nearly three decades. If I can make it through all of these African terms without mispronouncing them, I'm going to be really proud of myself. Uh, He has a PhD in missions from the University of Pretoria in South Africa and is Chancellor of African Christian University in Zambia. He's a prolific itinerant preacher. He's been called the Spurgeon of Africa. Uh, He's ministered globally with a passion for writing uh, through his books, blog articles, his work with sites like we mentioned, along with Ligonier Ministries and other groups that some of our listeners will be familiar with. And as a national weekly columnist, thank you again for joining us today. And we really wanted to uh, talk about some unique things that I think you have a great perspective on as far as the theological state of the church in Africa. But first, tell us a little bit about your own conversion and your calling to ministry and and what you're doing today in Zambia in Central Africa. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, I became a Christian in 1979. Uh, Prior to that, I I went to church all my life. Uh, my, My parents were... Um, in what we call here the United Church in Zambia. And uh, so that's the church we went to uh, in our our younger years. However, as I came to the end of my high school, uh, my elder sister got converted through a local Baptist church in, in the capital city of Lusaka, she was just about to go into university. In fact, she had gone into university, and during the first week, um, they had orientation there, and uh, the local Baptist church had special evangelistic meetings targeted towards first-year students. 
And so during one of those meetings, she got converted. And uh, it was the transformation that I saw in her life that clearly showed me that I wasn't a Christian, that uh, if that was what a true Christian looked like, I certainly had failed the test. And consequently, it got me searching. Thankfully, at about the same time, uh, a friend of mine who had just become a Christian sent me an evangelistic letter. Uh, I hope I mentioned that that was around about December 1979. And uh, the evangelistic letter um, really pointed me to repentance and faith in Christ, excluding church-going and um, uh, moral efforts at um, becoming outwardly uh, what God wants us to be. So I remember sitting in the lounge in our home, processing that and realizing that this is what I needed to do. But like any fallen creature, I thought, let me first of all attempt to just get rid of bad companies, start going to church a little more regularly and so on. And that's what I tried to do for about three months and failed miserably. So uh, round about uh, March, uh, I need to correct that. That was December 1978, and now March 1979. Um, I came back to that same letter and realized that I needed to repent, trust in the finished work of Christ. And that's exactly what I did. Uh, in my own bedroom, on my knees, I prayed to the Lord to save me. And uh, yeah, uh, the, the burden on my heart was lifted. Somehow I knew that the Lord had heard my prayers, and uh, that's how I came to Christ. That's a great story. And so you, you came to Christ, and then how did you end up then in ministry? Well, what happened was that the following year, in fact, exactly one year later was a Sunday, and I, um, I was baptized on that occasion at the same Baptist church where my sister was converted. And I remember coming out of the water and uh, with joy in my heart, saying to the Lord, uh, from this day on, I'm going to fly all my flags high. I've no idea where I got that phrase from, <laughs> uh, probably from one of the books I was reading. <laughs> but I was basically saying to the Lord, I'm putting aside any form of shame uh, concerning my Christian walk with the Lord. And um, in the next few months, I began to just have this, uh, I would really refer to it as a burden to preach. And often this occurred when I would be alone in my own closet praying. And initially, I thought I'm just um, envying my pastor. And, and consequently, I would rebuke myself about this. I was involved in evangelism, I was involved in one or two activities in the church, and I was at that time going through my first year as a university student, um, so I thought this is just some misplaced zeal, until because this burden wasn't going away, I sought the counsel of an older Christian in my hall of residence. Now this older Christian, 15 years later, was sharing this 
in the church where he is an elder. And he told me afterwards, he doesn't remember the occasion. <laughs> but his counsel to me uh, really helped me to navigate the next five to six years of my Christian life. Because basically what he said to me was, look, if you really think it's the Lord calling you and you are willing to go that route, the next time you are in a time of prayer, process it with him. Just say to him what is on your heart and you wait on him to see how he leads you henceforth. So I went into my closet and basically said to the Lord, Lord, I will not tell anybody about this, which was a big mistake. I should have at least told my church pastor. And then I said to the Lord, I'm agreeing to save you, but you now must open the door. And the proof is that you will do it without me knocking on any doors. Well, for the next five to six years, uh, the Lord was opening different doors. I became the primary leader of the evangelical um, uh, fellowship, uh, Christian fellowship on our university which comprised approximately 11% of the student um, uh, numbers on campus. And then in due season, I became the primary leader of the evangelical student movement in the country just before I graduated. I was also involved in uh, planting Kawata Baptist Church um, while I was still a student. Uh, When I graduated, I then went to work in the mines. And before long, uh, in the local church where I was, my pastor resigned and I became the primary preacher in that church, a small Baptist church in the copper mining uh, town of Muflira. And then when Kabwata Baptist Church was at a stage where it could call a pastor, they then called me to come and be their first pastor. So that's how I found myself there. I I love in your story, I'm just encouraged personally that you had this desire to serve. And at first you had this impulse to suppress that because now I'm I'm, I'm too young or I'm too new in the faith. And yet God really put on your heart that that was of him. And so that's just an encouragement for all of us to have Christian ambition. So we want to just ask you a little bit of what's going on in, you know, I I realize Africa is a a huge continent, bigger than most of us can get our mind around, specifically going on in Central Africa. What is the state of the church there? We we hear stories, you know, on one side, we hear Christianity is just exploding across Africa. But on the other hand, we hear stories of, of, of uh, Christianity that doesn't look that Christian, um, that maybe is uh, syncretistic and, and, you know, mixture of Christianity and African tribal religion. From your perspective as an African leader, as an African pastor, as a seminary uh, professor and, and, and president, um, can you give us some explanation of, from your perspective, what is the state of the church in Zambia? The Christian faith was first brought into our corner of the world by um, the great missionary and explorer, David Livingstone. Uh, he, he came into this part of the world when you know, there was hardly any form of um, knowledge of the Christian faith. And most of what he did was really to just open up the whole area to mission agencies so that it wasn't just a, a blank part of the world map, mm. 
And more than that, he then urged them uh, to come into the part of the world, uh, partly in order to uh, forestall um, the, the growing slave trade that was in the area um, by bringing in commerce as well. Um, and also whatever came with the Christian faith, such as education and uh, medical facilities and so on. So that would have been in the second half of the 19th century. Um, David Livingston himself died in 1873, not having seen much of the fruit of his labors. Having said that, a number of uh, missionary societies uh, began to come into this part of the world one after the other. And, and bef by the time we came into uh, the start of the 20th century, um, a number of them entered into some agreement to concentrate on different tribes and languages so that they could then translate the Bible into that language and consequently evangelize uh, that part of the, the, the country or the region. By the time we're coming to the middle of the 20th century, really a lot of the tribes had been evangelized. They had uh, a, a church that was now led by their own um, um, indigenous leaders. Um, the missionaries could now concentrate more on um, leadership development rather than the work of evangelism. They had their own native or indigenous evangelists doing the work. And by the time we come into the end of the 20th century, at least in Zambia, safely speaking, 80% or more of the country would call themselves Christians. Hmm. Now, you, you have to agree that you know, a lot of that would be, for instance, uh, Roman Catholic and so on, whom we would not as evangelicals consider uh, to be in the bracket of, of Christians, would still be wanting to reach out uh -huh. uh, to them with uh, the gospel of uh, justification by faith only. Um, but at the same time, that approach to reaching out to uh, the, the tribes as effective as it might have been, uh, because each society could then concentrate on one tribal grouping, um, gave birth to a, a form of Christianity that was tribal-based. And I would like to suggest that part of the syncretism would have also been because of that. In other words, different tribes associated themselves to different uh, um, denominations. And instead of them continuing to be robust in their evangelism, it became more an issue of if you belong to this tribe, then this is your church. Mm. And so... A lot of individuals have ended up in these denominations simply by tribe rather than by conversion. Invariably, once you have that, you end up with everything that is wrong being brought into uh, the Christian church instead of being kept on the outside. And partly that's where the syncretism has come in. Uh, people are still in the church but they really have dragged into the church a lot of their own 
um, tribal religions, basically. Mm. And so we have got this unhealthy mixture. Then also the influx of the Pentecostal charismatic movement, which on one hand you would have said, okay, it's simply the a, a difference of understanding the work of the Holy Spirit. But what has happened in the more recent past has been a, a form of uh, charismatic expression that's really just uh, the African traditional religions being brought into the church through the back door so that whatever it is that the witch doctors have been doing in the villages uh, is what now is happening in the church through the sort of man of God concept that would have been understood slightly differently uh, by the Western counterparts. Here in the West, when we talk about charismatic, and uh, th- that's a broad uh, a broad spectrum of, of of those who very health, wealth, prosperity teaching, all the way to to maybe they they believe that hey, God still does miracles. So when you're describing this syncretism of uh, the health and wealth prosperity gospel going on there, I've read something you've done before, an article you posted about how African tribal religion fits so neatly into these categories. Can you kind of explain that? What is unique about African tribal religion that fits so well and creates such fertile ground for prosperity teaching? And, and why is that a problem? Yeah, I think the best way is not to begin with the charismatic teaching, because if you begin from there, then I have to sort of try and make my way through uh, different innuendos and and um, colors and so on. Uh, the best is to begin with the African traditional religion. And if I begin from there, then you will more easily see how um, the, the charismatic movement in its extreme form, then fits hand and glove into what's happening on our end. So in our context, um, the the African traditional religion is is often around a, a figure, a human being that seems to ooze with um, mystical powers. And he is like the medium that enables you to relate to the uh, the deity and uh, God that is in whatever understanding that might be in order for you to receive blessings from him. And so uh, the understanding in the African traditional religions is that God is there, whatever the understanding of God might be, but he's far away. And between God and ourselves, will be, um, first of all, a layer of the angelic beings, and then there would be a layer of the the departed spirits, the spirits of the departed ones, some being good and others being bad. And so whatever is happening in your life, uh, the um, illnesses you're going through, the uh, deaths in your family, the your, your failure to have a good crop, uh, um, whatever difficulties might be happening, and in the more modern world, it might be your failure to get a job, uh, your failure to get promoted, your failure for your business to thrive, um, your failure for your wife to have children, and so on. All these things will be because of whatever is happening in the spirit world. And God can help, but there's need for a medium. 
who will then break through these layers so that God can know about what's happening in your life and his benevolence can flow through to you. So that's the general picture of the African traditional religions. And this middleman, the um, let's just call him for now the witch doctor, uh, plays that all-important role. Fast forward to the the man of God in the charismatic world, who um, in in um, a few years ago would have been just genuinely a pastor, who at the end of a service wants to pray for God's people, not because he thinks he's reeking with power, but that you know the prayers of a righteous man avails much. So. He would then ask other church leaders to to pray for those who are sick, um, those who who have situations in their lives that they need to be prayed for. Well, that may have been a Western concept. Once it then fell onto African soil, it easily fed into a, a cleaner form of the village witch doctor. Hmm. And so they are now doing exactly the same wow. thing. Hmm. And there's hardly any effort at true biblical teaching. It's all just waiting for that moment when this man of God will begin chanting in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, the same way in which a witch doctor will be chanting his own phrases in the village and in due season uh, bringing down apparently wow. the blessings from above. So that's that's the best way, perhaps, to to bring these two together. Well, and that transitions very well into our next question, which is that you've written and spoken extensively on the role of a pastor, and uh, you know, I would say, you know, you have a you have a high view of the role of a pastor and of a of a biblical ecclesiology there, qualifications for elders and pastors, and for the unique role that they play in the life of the local church. And so, what are some things that uh, African uh, pastors specifically can do um, to maybe avoid some of that, knowing what you just shared, that they're in a position where they're viewed as this holy man, potentially, that can be harmful to some people's understanding of the uniqueness of Christ. And and as you talk about that, too, I'm imagining there's implications also for missionaries who will go and missionaries who will be perceived as sort of being that mediator between God and, and man or, or between man and the spirit world in some way. So talk about the roles of pastors and missionaries in that, and how do we combat some of these heresies? Yeah, well, I think first of all, I would like to divide uh, church pastors in our part of the world into three clean camps, although I don't think there are three clean camps in reality, but just for the purpose of our discussion. I think first of all, uh, we have we have con men who, who have uh, entered into the Christian church and realized that they can make a quick buck out of this situation, out of this gap that they found themselves um, taking advantage of. So those guys are the majority at the moment, and there's very little one can do to help them because I think, first of all, they are unconverted. Um, they, They are simply abusing the Christian church to line their own pockets, so, you know, 
even if you were to attempt any form of teaching, they're not interested. Uh, they, they simply want to make their money and move on. So that's a helpless situation. And the most we can do is call the church's attention mm. to this category. Um, and what's happening now is even um, national governments are beginning to come in to try and arrest uh, some of these guys because they are sexually abusing uh, vulnerable women, for instance, uh, taking them into the bedroom saying by sleeping with them, they will then be able to remove the curse that's on their bodies. Now, which doctors do that? But clearly, no genuine innocent child of God who's a pastor mm. will want to do a thing like that. Okay, so that category is on one end. But we have the category that I would safely say is in the middle. And these are genuine pastors who, who really want to simply succeed. They want to be effective. They want to have numbers in their churches. And they are seeing that by putting prayer up front, powerful prayers over and above preaching and teaching, they are consequently getting the numbers. And it's, it's, it's really that category that I would want to, to spend a lot more of my efforts on, trying to draw their attention to, for instance, the pastoral epistles, so that they can see more and more that our primary calling as, as pastors is to preach for the salvation and sanctification of God's people. That's our primary calling, and that we are to do that by displaying before God's people the whole counsel of God, and that it is as God's people, um, well, first of all, that salvation happens in those that are listening to us, that we're now getting them from darkness to light. And then as we seek to teach them the word of God in all its fullness, uh, the, what it means to be in Christ, uh, that a lot of the issues that uh, beset um, a lot of people here in Africa, that they are now able to think through with a biblical worldview and consequently be able to address them. Even some of the, uh, the wants or needs that are in their lives, like you know, failing to, to have a child in marriage, um, etc., they'll be able to think through these matters with a, a biblical mind and uh, find a solution, which may not necessarily lead to having children which even in those cases often doesn't happen, but that they might be able to see um, God's all sufficiency for them, even in that situation. So I think that's where the greatest battle is. And that obviously has to happen uh, partly through, especially with these pastors, through uh, informal uh, pastor training sessions, because most of them will never be in the normal Bible college, but also through the print media, through radio, television, and especially the internet, hmm. which is a great blessing in today's world, uh, that those who, pastors who are more knowledgeable uh, can address these matters through blogs, uh, through the social media, 
and so on. To me, that's that's really what we need to do in order to to combat this this real disaster that has come upon the church in Africa in the 21st century. Well, that actually transitions very well into another question that I wanted to make sure that we ask you. You're talking about the different ways that pastors can be resourced. And many missions thinkers, at least here in the West, and possibly for good reason, are suspicious of exporting Western theologies into an African context, and they advocate that Africans should be self-theologizing. So you have the three selves, you know, self-sustaining, all those things, but they would add a fourth, and they would say that African churches should be self-theologizing. So, but you're you're coming at us with a perspective here that I think is, is maybe a helpful counterbalance is there a tension in your mind between uh, African culture and yet the fact that you hold to what some might characterize as a Western theology, but it is a, it's a deep, it's a confessional, historic Baptist theology, and it largely originated from the West. But in your mind, how do you balance the fact that Africans need to be doing theology on their own and you don't want to import an external system into Africa, but at the same time, you also want African churches to be aware of the giants on whose shoulders we stand theologically? since the Reformation. So talk to me a little bit about how maybe the African church should interact with historic theology. Yes, no, thanks a lot for asking that. Uh, it seems to me that it's it's really an issue of, of both um, rather than, you know, choosing one, one area only. I, I think, first of all, um, you know, I've just done a book. Uh, well, my PhD was on missions, and my PhD thesis was really handling the whole issue of um, um, the, the passing on of the torch from, from pioneer missionaries to indigenous leaders, how to do that in a way that produces uh, healthy, healthy churches without a bottleneck happening in, in, in between, which often has been the case resulting in a lot of tension and sometimes even conflict between missionaries and indigenous leaders. Now, part of that, I argued that the initial stages of any missions work, um, you, you cannot avoid paternalism. There is a healthy paternalism because you go as a missionary with knowledge into a place of ignorance. So clearly, you need to, to be able to say, guys, this is the truth. And in that sense, we cannot avoid uh, the, the rich heritage that we have um, from the West um, in terms of the uh, theology, doctrine. Uh, some of it may have begun in North Africa, as we know, all the Augustines and others, mm-hmm. but clearly... There has been at least um, 20 centuries of the Holy Spirit teaching the church, and a lot of that has been the the mushrooming of Reformed theology uh, from the uh, 16th, 17th, 18th century, and so on. So we, we shouldn't throw that away in the name of trying to you know, self-theologize as Africans. We need that. And a lot of that is is from the West. Uh, so, but then uh, once we have developed African leaders, um, I've argued in my PhD thesis that it's important to get them to, 
to confront the challenges of the day in which they are. In other words, they've got the 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 foundation has been um, laid, and they they now need to uh, to apply those unchanging verities to their own changing world, mm -hmm. uh, which is what our own Western theologians are doing mm -hmm. with the the, the postmodern world in which they are. Mm -hmm. So we also must then learn to do the same. The, the, the kind of issues, for instance, that beset us today, where the pastor is now really a, um, a witch doctor with a thin veneer of spirituality, the Western world will not address. Mm. We, church leaders, pastors in Africa today, mm. need to hold the bull by the horns and deal with it from the same premise, the, the theology, the, the truths that are foundational to the Christian faith. And uh, clearly, uh, our, our missionary friends who are still with us, and we thank God for, for them being among us and uh, the unique speciality that they bring to us, uh, their feet will still be hanging in the air. We are the ones who, who are homegrown mm. and, and sense the three-dimensional views of the issues we are grappling with, and we are the best then to address them. So what would your advice be if there was a, a young man or woman that was saying, hey, I, I feel led of the Lord to, to come to Central Africa and serve as a missionary? Um, what advice would you give them? One, you know, are missionaries still needed in Africa? I think we know the I think I know your answer to that. Um, but then, two, um, you know, how, how could a how could an African a missionary going to Africa dig deeper into the culture and be most effective uh, serving there? Yeah, I think, you see, the, the issue is, first of all, yes, we do need missionaries from all over the world to come into Africa, just as the rest of the world needs missionaries from Africa to get to them. So uh, I think we, we are still one body in the world, and we can um, benefit the most from the cross-pollination taking place. So uh, I think that one, let's tick the box and then move on. With respect to the missionary coming into this part of the world, I think, first of all, it, it must be the recognition that the church is now there in Africa. You know, it's, it's not somebody sort of crossing the ocean to introduce anything new. Uh, we largely hear the church is here in Africa. Christian leaders are here in Africa. Mm. And there's need, therefore, when missionaries come into this part of the world, to, to first of all, just spend some time learning mm. from what's happening here, uh, rather than just getting off the plane and immediately beginning to teach. But but allowing for some some time for the truths that are already in the soul to be, as it were, cooked on African soil. Then there, there is a better ability. Uh, or chance to be more relevant in one's ministry uh, on on African soil. Now, how long that takes, obviously, it's it's a whole process. I mean, one is teaching while learning and doing a lot of deliberate learning from the leaders 
who are, are here on African soil so that there, there is a blending of um, what has been learned uh, across the ocean uh, with issues that really need to be addressed uh, here on, on, on African soil. Uh, there are areas that still really need uh, their expertise, as I said, especially in terms of pastoral training. There's no doubt about that, that we, we still very much need uh, brethren uh, from across the, the, the oceans. Um, the more sort of technical side of ministry, uh, there's a lot we can learn uh, from friends who've been exposed to the advancement of uh, uh, the technical world, uh, the computerized world, the digital world, and so on. There's a lot we can learn from that, um, and so forth. So uh, we, we certainly need missionaries, but there's need for that kind of humility that recognizes that uh, perhaps the leaders on the ground are better placed. I mean, think in terms of uh, Peter and Paul, and even the, the uh, new outreach that took place from Antioch. I mean, prior to that, Barnabas was the appropriate leader over Paul, who at that time was Saul. But as they were now making uh, this entry into Gentile territory the, from Antioch, the brethren immediately realized that the better placed person was Saul, whose name then was changed to Paul for appropriate reasons. And he became the primary leader, mm. and, and Barnabas followed after him. So it's that kind of flexibility that we need in the current situation, because we need to hold hands in order for us to carry the great work of Christ forward on the African continent. And I have no doubt that if we can do it properly, we will in fact find ourselves uh, making the, the next missionary army that will come out of Africa uh, a better army than it is right now. Mm. It's also an encouraging and challenging uh, rebuke to those who are in the States who maybe have a love of theology and yet haven't figured out how to use that yet. And and you're certainly talking about there's a need for theological education and for partnering together with African churches in that. Or even if someone's not a missionary, but maybe they're doing ministry and they're a pastor of a church here in the States and they've supported projects or individual missionaries in Africa, helping them to think more critically about the ways that they can partner with African churches and really just make sure that the depth and the quality of the ministry there is above board. And so thank you for your strong words. Pastor Mbewe, uh, what are some resources that you would recommend, uh, either that you yourself have put out or others that are close associated with you, for more on this information, whether it's combating uh, prosperity theology or, or ministry in general in an African context? What would you recommend? And then how can our listeners potentially uh, get a hold of you or hear more about your ministry if they were interested in following and learning more? Uh, I, I definitely don't like self-promotion, <laughs> but uh, we'll, we'll do um, it for you. <laughs> we'll, we'll promote you for you because we're grateful for all of this. You can be humble. We'll do it for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, every year in my own church uh, in the month of December for well over 20 years, uh, I've held a seminar where I've sought to teach um, on issues that are relevant to to Africa, basically, you know, echoing 
the Reformed faith with the African sound so that people here can see that the Bible is still relevant in addressing issues in the church and in the world. And uh, thankfully, a publisher in the, in the USA printed at least 10 of those seminar materials uh, into a book that has been published in the, in the USA called uh, Foundations for the Flock. And um, I'm grateful for that. And it's the kind of book I would definitely want to see more and more in the hands of uh, brethren here. It deals with the basics of uh, what uh, Christians need to know about the church in order for, uh, for the church to be healthy uh, here. I've also recently uh, um, written a book that's also been published uh, last year uh, called Pastoral Preaching, and uh, the subtitle is Building a People for God. And there, uh, it's again written specifically for African pastors. Uh, all my illustrations are deliberately African for that very purpose, because I'd like our own people to uh, understand it better than they normally would understand a book written in, in the West. And um, it's also a book that's come out of a real burden that I've had uh, because I, I'd like true preaching to be happening in our churches because as preaching goes, so goes the church. Mm. And as the church goes, so goes the world. Mm. So that's uh, part of where my, my concern has been. Um, more recently, especially with respect to the issue of the prosperity gospel, um, a book has been uh, published in which uh, Wayne Grudem, John Piper, and two friends of mine in Kenya, Ken Bugua and uh, Michael um, Maura, uh, have participated, and myself. Uh, it's probably got one or two different titles, but one of them is True Prosperity. Mm. Um, is one that, again, I'd like to highly recommend. Uh, the goodness is that it, it transcends the two sides of the Atlantic. We've got uh, two men in the, um, the USA and three of us in Africa. And uh, I'm in Central Africa. My two brothers are in East Africa. And then also it, it has a positive chapter. That's the one I've written on what the gospel really is, and then it also has a number of chapters that uh, address uh, prosperity uh, teaching. The advantage with it, also including the West, uh, is that it then um, makes individuals on African soil see that this is not just fellow Africans in poverty-stricken countries kicking at um, a, a, a teaching that is meant to make them wealthy, uh, but pastors and theologians in the Western world where they see wealth being are also concerned about this and addressing it. So again, that's, that's um, an, uh, a book that uh, I would really want to see in more and more hands. Apart then from um, resources that might be in blogs, and so on. You're also going to be at Cross Conference uh, in Louisville in January. Is that correct? 
Yes, yes, I'll be speaking there. I'm grateful for the opportunity. Well, that's great. And I'll be there. ABW will be exhibiting there. And we look forward to hearing you then. And Pastor Conrad Mbewe, you can follow him uh, on Twitter at Conrad M-B-E-W-E, uh, or you can go to ConradMbewe.com. Uh, Pastor Mbewe, thank you so much again for your ministry uh, in your own context and your ministry that you've had overseas as well. And we're so grateful. Uh, for people like you who are helping to to deepen our understanding of the church in the majority world, I think that's fair to say because we often have an unfair assessment of the majority world that um, that that the church hasn't arrived there yet, and we need to bring it. And yet, you're showing that it is there, and you're helping bring depth to it and depth to our own missions efforts as well. So we thank you so much for that. Thank you. Thanks a lot, and thanks for having me on this podcast. If you want to get more great content on theology, missions, and practice, go to missionspodcast.com. And while you're there, make sure that you subscribe in iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite listening platform. And please make sure that you also give us an honest review and a five-star rating. And don't forget to be sending your questions to alex at missionspodcast.com, along with any other ideas for future episodes. And until next time, thank you for joining us.